The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. What does root beer have to do with a potential COVID-19 vaccine? A deep dive on that connection. A peek into the world of people who grow giant vegetables. And the Iowa woman who had her cat successfully cloned. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Saponins are a chemical compound found in various plant species, which, when shaken together with water, create a soap-like foam. They're used to create the foam that traps in carbonation in Slurpees and sodas like root beer. They're also one of the more promising adjuvants being explored for vaccines right now, including one of the leading COVID-19 vaccine candidates. An adjuvant is an agent added to a vaccine to boost the immune response and thereby decrease the amount of antigen necessary in the vaccine. They've been really hit or miss over the years, though, which means FDA approval is rare and many vaccine manufacturers forego them altogether. Past adjuvants have included tapioca starch and aluminum salt, but over recent years, a number of manufacturers have looked into saponins as an adjuvant, specifically from the Cuyaha saponaria, or soap bark tree. Quoting The Atlantic, For hundreds, if not thousands of years, the tree bark of the Cuyaha, ground up and mixed with water, was used as soap by the indigenous Mapuche people. Throughout the 1800s, soap bark became an international commodity, American magazines offered up recipes for hair-curling liquids and wool detergents made with the soap-like saponins. Sozodont toothpaste advertised itself as the only dentifrice that contained this salubrious botanical product. In the early 1900s, makers of carbonated beverages discovered that adding soap bark extract to their drinks created a coating of bubbles on the surface that kept the carbonation from escaping. From there, the applications of saponin expanded rapidly. During World War II, it was used in surveillance efforts as both a lens cleaner and an ingredient in photographic reagents, end quote. It's hypothesized that saponins evolved as a natural pesticide, and Ricardo San Martin, a chemical engineer who helped develop the modern Chilean soap bark industry, has discovered that it can also be used as a biopesticide for nematodes on grapes. And one of the leading distributors of saponins, San Diego-based Desert King International, sells saponins for use in root beer and Slurpees, but also as animal supplements. Saponins can apparently reduce viruses and improve growth, and Desert King's stock in particular is now used in over half of the antibiotic-free poultry in the U.S., with such a corner on the market and with ties to sustainable farming of soapbark trees in Chile, it makes sense that Desert King has been picked to help provide saponins for one of the leading COVID-19 vaccine candidates, manufactured by a company called Novavax. A bit more on saponins as an adjuvant. Quoting The Atlantic, 
A crude saponin extract had been used in veterinary vaccines since the 1950s, but it was too toxic for humans, causing red blood cells to burst. In the 1990s, a researcher named Charlotte Kinsel separated some of the 50 or so saponins in Cuyaha saponaria extract, then tested them individually in mice. QS7 was a potent adjuvant, but there wasn't a lot of it. QS18 proved to be the most toxic. QS21 was relatively mild and generated both an antibody and a T-cell response, end quote. And after gaining FDA approval in 2017, QS21 was used in the Shingrix vaccine, and it was a huge success. Quote, Shingrix conferred immunity on 91% of people over 70 years old, more than double that of a previous shingles vaccine, end quote. Last year, it also began being used in a malaria vaccine, Mosquirex, and is included in a current late-stage tuberculosis vaccine candidate. Novavax had been using a different saponin-based adjuvant called Matrix M for an influenza vaccine called Nanoflu, which was successfully finishing Phase 3 trials when COVID-19 emerged. They pivoted focus to a COVID-19 vaccine, also using Matrix M as an adjuvant, and animal trials showed promising results this past spring. But if they or any other manufacturer hopes to use a saponin adjuvant, getting enough for a global rollout is going to be a substantial challenge. Novavax had applied for international funding to produce 100 million doses of their COVID-19 vaccine by the end of this year and a billion doses by the end of 2021. But, quoting again, Nine years ago, researchers estimated that the global supply of pharmaceutical-grade Cuyaha extract was sufficient for just 6 million doses of vaccine, end quote. The good news is that San Martin and Desert King have innovated in a lot of ways over the years, finding new ways to extract more saponin using less trees. But still, Novavax would require several thousand pounds of Cuyaha extract each year, bark from the equivalent of 5,000 to 7,000 trees. San Martin says it's a real concern for the survival of the Cuyaha. And that's not just an environmental concern, or a worry about not having enough saponins for other uses like root beer in the future. If this turns out to be the one true vaccine and we run out of Cuyaha trees before COVID-19 is permanently eradicated, we're out of luck. And this has gotten close to happening before with other treatments that rely on adjuvants. While effective in many ways, adjuvants add just one more step to the already highly complicated supply chain process. St. Martin, Desert King, and their competitors, other purveyors of saponin, are all exploring various solutions, like establishing soapbark plantations outside of Chile, harvesting the leaves, and creating semi-synthetic versions of the QS21 adjuvant. And whether it's QS21 or another adjuvant, 40% of the over 200 vaccine candidates around the world are protein-based, a kind which usually requires an adjuvant. And while some of the candidates without adjuvants or with more common ones, like one that's using oil from shark livers, which is apparently not in short supply and has already been stockpiled, won't face the same supply challenge, Novavax's vaccine has other benefits, like being able to be stored in refrigerators instead of freezers, which makes global distribution much easier. And the results published in August of its first human trial were very promising, activating both antibody and T-cell production. Cornell virologist John Moore told the New York Times, quote, This is the first time I'm looking at something and saying, yeah, I'd take that, end quote. 
Japan, Canada, South Korea, and the United Kingdom have secured purchase agreements with Novavax, and it's one of the vaccines, along with AstraZeneca, that the Serum Institute of India has received funding from the Gates Foundation to produce. And just a quick aside on AstraZeneca, you may have heard that one of their Phase 3 trial participants unfortunately passed away, casting doubt on the safety of the vaccine. New information out today says that apparently that participant received a placebo, and therefore AstraZeneca's trials will be resuming imminently. As for Novavax, The Atlantic notes that it will probably hit the U.S. after the RNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer, which are likely to receive emergency approval. So lots to watch in the vaccine space, and I've been finding so much more to the story with each one than I would have ever expected. It's gigantic gourd season, and onions, and turnips, and cucumbers, and so many different kinds of gigantic fruits and vegetables. The Guardian recently dug into the lives of British people who commit themselves to growing the biggest possible produce, like pumpkins that have to be carted in on trailers, six-pound tomatoes, and cucumbers as tall as four-year-olds. And 2020, it turns out, has been a banner year for giant vegetables. The UK saw its heaviest ever pumpkin at 1,176 kilograms, or over 2,500 pounds. The UK also broke world records for heaviest red cabbage and longest beetroot at 31 kilograms, or 69 pounds, and 8.5 meters, respectively. And part of the reason for so many record breakers this year lockdown boredom, and a renewed interest in gardening. But what motivates people to grow enormous produce even when there isn't a pandemic going on? Quoting The Guardian, Only the truly joyless would struggle to summon a smile at the sight of a marrow as big as a lawnmower or a cabbage as wide as a double bed. Giant vegetable growing is as life-affirmingly ridiculous as it is gloriously escapist. Plus, it's a technical challenge. You can grow them bigger every year so you're always improving, says Gerald Short, a record company owner from Watlington in Oxfordshire. Kevin Forty, the Welsh administrator of a website and Facebook group for giant vegetable growers, sees it more like a sport than a hobby. We're like athletes, absolutely, he says. We're all aiming to get the world record. Usain Bolt runs the world's fastest 100 meters, and we're aspiring to get the longest vegetables. Luckily, most growers are in on the joke and embrace the silliness of it all. Facebook groups for giant vegetable growers are full of pictures of men, they are almost always men, cradling onions like babies or wielding carrots like lightsabers. These are vaudeville images, as bawdy as a seaside postcard and just as absurd. In these anxious, insecure, fearful times, why not retreat from the horrors of a global pandemic by contemplating images of middle-aged men lying like Burt Reynolds in his cosmopolitan centerfold besides engorged zucchinis? End quote. So yeah, there's a bit of a phallic and certainly machismo element to it all, which both explains and adds to the lack of gender diversity in the field. But there's also a lot of discipline to it, and a lot of math and science, in addition to the usual gardening challenges of overfeeding, timing, and pests, you also have to figure out how to structurally support the oversized vegetables as they grow and prevent them from splitting. Fortunately, there's a strong community that exists online and in ordinary years at festivals, with giant vegetable growers happy to support each other and trade tips. 
There is, however, a division that exists between the giant vegetable growers and people who compete for the highest quality produce at festivals. The two groups don't often mix. And like with all competitions, cheaters occasionally find their way in. Quoting again, At the Nationals ten years ago, Peter Glazebrook, a retired surveyor, witnessed a man trying to pass off a shop-bought cantaloupe melon as his own. The residue from the price sticker gave him away. In the 90s, people would sometimes inject vegetables with water to increase their weight. Organizers brought in water-detecting machines to stamp this out. Medwin Williams of the National Vegetable Society has seen onions filled with putty and carrots with orange floor polish to disguise the fact they were rotten. End quote. And while the giant pumpkin scene is fairly lucrative in the United States, in the United Kingdom, it's mostly for glory. And you rarely eat giant vegetables. They tend to be a bit rotten or simply too tough and unappealing, so they're usually given to farmers as animal feed. And if you want to learn more about giant vegetable growers, there's a book that I have been meaning to read forever called Backyard Giants, The Passionate, Heartbreaking, and Glorious Quest to Grow the Biggest Pumpkin Ever by Susan Warren, which is a nonfiction account of a group of competitors trying to achieve the then-world's first-ever 1,500-pound pumpkin. Or if you are more of a fiction person, there is a 2005 young adult novel by Joan Bauer called Squashed about a teenage girl in rural Iowa trying to grow a prize-winning giant pumpkin while also navigating her crush on the new boy in town. Because, again, it's a young adult novel. But leave you with one last anecdote from the British giant pumpkin growing scene, which is that of one of the few women in the game... Jenna Brown grows giant pumpkins every year and then carves them out using a chainsaw because they're that big and puts her children inside of them to take photos. Sadly, I don't think the photos are public anywhere, but wow, what a sight to imagine. A woman in Iowa lost her beloved cat and got a new one. Not too remarkable, except that the new cat is a clone of the one that died. Before the original Mr. Tufts passed away, the anonymous woman took him to a vet to have some skin, hair, and fat samples taken. And that local vet, who was enthusiastic but notes he had no prior experience with cloning, couldn't help Mr. Tufts Jr. to live, however. For that, the woman went to Viagin, a company devoted to cloning people's pets. And yes, they are a real company, not something out of a Michael Crichton novel. They call themselves the worldwide leader in cloning the animals we love. And their tagline is, love lasts forever. Viagen also happens to have collaborated with biotech company Revive and Restore, who I mentioned on the September 8th episode of this show when they successfully cloned an endangered horse. Viagen helped them with that endeavor, although they don't seem to be involved in Revive and Restore's larger goal of bringing woolly mammoths back to life. Instead, Viagen is more focused on cloning pets, though it'll cost pet owners about $35,000 for cats, $50,000 for dogs, and $85,000 for horses. And the fact that horses are on offer makes me start thinking of all the implications of cloning in the realm of horse racing. But anyways, Mr. Tufts Jr. The tissue samples of the original Mr. Tufts were sent to Viagen, who then, quoting Adi, replaced the nucleus of a female cat's egg with one of the frozen cells from Mr. Tufts. 
Then they joined the egg and cell together and transferred the whole shebang into a surrogate cat mother. End quote. Mr. Tufts Jr. was born naturally and is a genetic twin of the original Mr. Tufts. Though the owner notes that Junior is quite a bit healthier, as the original Mr. Tufts was a rescue cat who experienced a bad respiratory illness. And an important note, Viagen does not do any sort of genetic modification. You get an exact clone and nothing more. So, if you've got tens of thousands of dollars to spare and you don't think you'll be able to bear the death of your beloved pet, start taking those DNA samples now so you'll be ready to clone them in the future. And I just really can't believe the world that we're living in sometimes. I mean, wow. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go see what it would take to match up competitive eaters with competitive giant vegetable growers for the crossover event of the century. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.